this time, the children ages 3 to 6 are dismissed for Children's Church, so you can make your way to the back. I would invite you now to pray with, uh, bow with me and pray once more as we prepare to enter God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you once more that you are a God who hears and answers prayer. We thank you that in your word you, in, in fact, instruct us that when we have concerns, when we have anxieties, when we have troubles of any kind, that in everything, by prayer and petition, we can present our requests to you, and that not only can we present them, but that you hear them, and that according to your will, you graciously respond. And so, Lord, we lift up those today who are in need of physical healing from you, and we think especially of Uh, Russ and Kyla's sister-in-law, Jill Gunther. Lord, her situation seems beyond hope, and yet with you there was always hope. And so we lift up and intercede on her behalf, Lord, that you would do a good work in her life. And that if according to your will it is to heal, we, we welcome that, Lord Jesus, that you would heal her and bring glory to yourself. And so, Father, we also agree with her prayer that whatever the outcome, you would be glorified in her life in her family and in her situation, and so we lift them up to you, bring them strength and comfort uh, in these days, we pray. Lord, we also pray for anyone else who's dealing with illness of any kind. Lord, those who are dealing with anxiety or depression or any other uh, sort sort of struggle, Lord, be near to them, and may they feel that peace that surpasses all understanding as you meet with them in their need today. Now, Father, we thank you that you are prepared to meet with us through your word, that it is living and active, that it is sharper than a double-edged sword, and that this morning you want to speak to us through your word, and that by your spirit you would give us understanding. And so I pray for that this morning. Speak through me, your servant. May the words be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we are resuming our series on spiritual warfare And we have entered now part 10, entitled The Sword of the Spirit. Now, we've been uh, been looking at the armor of God for a number of weeks now. And this morning, we have come today to this book in uh, a specific way. Of course, we've been studying and reading the words of this book, and we do so every week. But this week, we're going to focus on the book itself. And I want to talk with you today about this book that saved my life, this book that changed the course of my life, and this book that even today continues to sustain my life, just as it has done for so many others. One of those people is a man named Alexander Rostovzev, and Alexander, many years ago, was a matinee idol in the prestigious Moscow theater scene. Now, he was a non-religious sort of a man. He'd had something of a religious instruction as a child, but he'd left that all behind. He was somewhat of an atheist. And so as a matinee idol, he once took on a role of playing Jesus in a somewhat sacrilegious play entitled Christ in a Tuxedo. In one of the scenes in this play, Alexander was supposed to read two Bible verses from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He was then to remove his gown and ask for this line, give me my tuxedo and my top hat. And so he rehearsed this, and and scoffing at Jesus was really the intent of this whole play. But then the night came where it was to be done before a live audience. 
And so, in one climactic scene in the play, Alexander had this line come up where he was to cry out, Give me my tuxedo and my top hat. But then, in front of a full house, as he began to read the two Bible verses from the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. His voice began to suddenly quiver, and his whole body began to tremble. Then, instead of following the script and proceeding with his lines, Rostovzev, he just kept on reading from Matthew chapter 5. He ignored the coughs, the calls, and the foot stamping of his fellow actors on the stage and behind the scenes. What are you doing? Soon the audience itself was beginning to wonder, was he going to read the entire Sermon on the Mount as he just kept going and going? But Alexander was now completely captivated by the words of Christ. He simply could not stop reading. And then suddenly, with such fever building within him that these words were true, he suddenly had come to his mind the one Bible verse he remembered from his childhood. The ones he had learned in the Russian Orthodox Church. And then suddenly he lifted up his arms and he cried out the words of the thief on the cross. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And as the curtain dropped... Rostovzev, by the time it had lowered, had put his faith in Christ. Now, someone could rightly listen to a story like that and say, that sounds pretty far-fetched. I, I just don't believe that something like that is true or that something like that could happen, and yet it did happen, and this man is a living testimony to that. It changed his life. He left the theater scene that very day and went on to, in fact, become a minister and an evangelist of the gospel. Sounds far-fetched that in this, you know, ancient book that we hold here this morning, that, that you have uh, in your hands, that you probably have a few more at home on a bookshelf, this ancient book containing the 2,000-year-old words of a Jewish rabbi, it seems far-fetched that it could have such a profound effect on a man's life, on anyone's life for that matter. So how could this book, this ancient word, have such an impact on people that it changes them from one course to another, just like that. In fact, that it continues to change the course of people's lives, that it's the reason why you're here this morning. It's the reason why I'm here this morning is because of this book. It sounds far-fetched, and yet here we are, living evidence that how could this be unless the words and the power of these words are in fact true. And that is what I believe that these words are in fact true and the power within it is real. And so we come now to Ephesians 6 and verse 17, which tells us, and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, up until now in our study, every piece of the armor of God that we've looked at has been primarily defensive in function. Those first five pieces of armor, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, and the helmet of salvation are all designed principally to protect the soldier of Christ from the attacks of the devil so that they can take their stand, so that they can stand firm against the, against the evil schemes of the wicked one. But now we come today at last to the only offensive weapon that the soldier of Christ has been issued, and that is his sword. 
Now, the sword, of course, can be used in combat both defensively to parry away a, a, a blow of the enemy, but it can also be used in its primary role to thrust forward and strike our spiritual enemies, causing them to draw back and retreat. Now, in this next slide, we'll see a picture of the classic Roman sword. Now, the Romans had two different types of swords that they would use in combat. The larger of the two was called the Romphia. And the Romphia was a long, uh, broad sword of that design. It was about four feet long, forged of iron with a single cutting edge. However, the Greek word for sword that Paul uses here is makaira, which refers specifically to the Roman sword famously known as the gladius. And the gladius is the sword depicted in our slide here this morning. The gladius was a much shorter and lighter double-edged sword, which was worn in a sheath by all Roman soldiers. It was standard issue. They all had one. The average length of the gladius was between 18 to 24 inches, and in Matthew chapter 26, we read there that the Roman soldiers who came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, that same word, Machaira, is used referring to the swords that the soldiers were carrying as they arrested Jesus. That same word, Machaira, was also used to refer to the sword that Simon Peter then drew as he began to defend Jesus, swinging wildly. And we know that in his attack, he, he cut off the ear of Malchus, a servant of the high priest, and one thing that's interesting as we consider Simon slicing off someone's ear is that he wasn't a good enough swordsman to aim for the ear and actually slice it off. No, he was actually a poor swordsman because he was undoubtedly aiming for Malchus's head, but he missed and he sliced off his ear instead. And this indicates the fact that Peter was not a trained swordsman. He was not skilled with a weapon. In fact, he was a fisherman. However, that exact same sword, that same gladius, in the hands of a trained and skilled Roman soldier would be transformed into a precise and deadly weapon. For in close combat, the Roman soldier was trained not to use the gladius as much for slashing blows, like Peter undoubtedly did to slice off the ear in a, in a slashing blow. They were trained principally to use the gladius in thrusts, pinpoint thrusts, where they would lead with the shield to push back the enemy and follow through with a thrust, aiming at the weak points in the armor to get past the guard, get through the armor, if possible, and sink that point deeply into the flesh of their opponent with the aim to either injure, you know, uh, disable, or outright kill their opponent. And so the Roman soldiers trained and drilled with their gladius as a regular part of their training. It was something that was a daily occurrence for them so that when the time of battle came, that weapon was not something that was just there for ceremony or ornament. When it came to, to offensive action, they were prepared to strike a deadly blow at a moment's notice. It's why the gladius became known as the sword that conquered the world. For it was at the point of the Roman sword of which the Roman Empire was built and expanded and maintained. But now, while the gladius sword may have conquered much of the world for Rome for a season in the world's history, there is another sword which is far more powerful, that is even still conquering the whole world for God. And this is a kingdom that is a, a forever eternal kingdom, not one that will end as Roman, the Roman Empire ended for this kingdom is an eternal kingdom. 
And so just as the gladius sword was the Roman soldier's primary weapon in hand-to-hand combat, so too is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It is the soldier of Christ's primary weapon for hand-to-hand combat as we too wage a war, a spiritual battle against Satan and all of his dark forces of evil. Elsewhere in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, we see this same metaphor used for the Word of God. There it's our call to worship from this morning, Hebrews 4, verse 12. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now notice again it's compared to the gladius, sharper than a double-edged sword. It's the same sword being referred to comparing the word of God To this sword. But notice that in the comparison, the author says that the Word of God is sharper and more powerful than even the sharpest of double edged swords could ever be that are crafted by human hands. For you see, a a physical sword, even by the most skilled of craftsmen, with the, the best of metals and alloys to forge it, the very best one of them. They are limited to only being able to cut through physical things. They are limited to only being able to cut through physical flesh. However, the sword of the Spirit, it is described as being able to cut through something far more profound and uh, uh, difficult than even physical flesh. It says that the sword of the Spirit can pierce and cut through the spiritual soul and spirit right down to discerning even the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So this word actually knows the thoughts and intentions and the deepest desires behind our actions. Behind our words, behind our speech, this word can cut right down to the very core of our souls and our being and discern what is hidden within. That is how sharp this sword is. And so... I want you to take note that there is also an analogy to the double-edged nature of the sword. For you see, the blade can, in this way, cut in two directions. It's got two edges. And so this means that the first direction that God's word must always cut is towards ourselves. The, The sword, this Bible in my hands, must first cut towards me before it can cut towards anyone else. For you see, this word must first be received for ourselves. If the living word of God does not first penetrate and transform your heart, my heart, right down to our very souls in life, if it does not first do that, if it has not first cut us, if it has not first pierced us, we are now completely ineffective in using it to try to pierce or convict anyone else, let alone wage war against Satan. But once we have first had that edge of the word cut towards ourselves, then by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, it is then that the other edge comes into play, that we are capable, by the power of the Holy Spirit, remember, this is the sword of the Spirit. It's not a sword of the flesh, it's a sword of the Spirit. And so empowered by the Spirit, we are now equipped to be able to use this same living word against our spiritual foes and Satan himself. So make no mistake about it, this sword, it was not forged or written by the hands of men. It was forged by the Spirit of God, who is the very one who authored it. 
and the very one who endows it with his divine power. As 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 to 21 tells us, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here this spells out very clearly that it was the Holy Spirit who authored and empowered the words of this book. It is he who who inspired the prophets to write the words of God. And it is he who now gives it its power that as it is spoken, as it is received, it is the Spirit of God who who endows it with that divine power to penetrate lives, to convict, to bring to repentance. That these words are true, just as it was for the story of Alexander in the outset, that here he was thinking he was going to make a mockery of Christ, and he's reading his words, and yet suddenly they pierced his heart like a sword right there, jumping off of the page, and it transformed his life. In an instant. And just as it did for Alexander, it's done the same for me. And I know it can do the same for each one of us here this morning. So I want you to just take a moment right now. And if you have your Bible, I hope you do, but if you have your Bible, just take a good look at it. Take a good look at at, at this book that you have in your hands that you probably mostly take for granted that you have one. Some of you might have to take a look at your phone. You know, take for granted that you have you know, as many translations of the Bible as you want on your phone at your fingertips at a given moment. It's truly an incredible thing that we have so much availability to this Word of God. Now consider as you look at your copy of this Word of God. The words in this book are not from man. They are from God. Therefore, they are not just ancient dead words lying on a page. They are living and active in this present moment. They are not just ancient, dusty words from history. They are here for us now, in the present, today. And it means that faster than the thrust of a sword, as fast as a most skilled Roman soldier could drive a sword into his enemy, these words are faster still, that they can jump right off the page, And sharper than that double-edged sword, they can penetrate deeply into our hearts, into our minds, into our spirits, into our very souls, with the power to convict us of our sin. Then the humility to repent of our sin, the grace to believe, and the power to be reborn as children of God. And then further, after being reborn, these words continue to give us life as they nourish our souls, as we grow in the knowledge of God and the knowledge of Christ and the fellowship with the Spirit. They sustain us, our living daily bread. So I want you to make no mistake about it. As as we hold our Bibles in our hands, they contain within its pages all of the mighty power of God to not only change and transform your life and mine, but the entire world. For this, this is the word that must go out to be proclaimed this good news of the gospel in every corner of the earth, as Jesus said, before the end will come. This word shall be proclaimed. And God's word cannot return to him void. It must take place. And so here is the catch for all of us. Once we have received this life-changing word of God, the question then becomes, how do we use it? How do we make use of this life-changing, powerful word? How can we effectively wield this sword of the Spirit in battle 
against our spiritual foe. While here, both our knowledge of and our training in the correct use of Scripture is vital. Now remember I said earlier about Peter versus a trained Roman soldier. We saw the ineffectiveness of Peter swinging wildly with his sword. He had the sword, but he wasn't trained in its use, so he was not effective. Whereas a Roman soldier, trained in its use, skilled, he is going to be highly effective to strike and pierce even very small targets, even in the heat of battle. And so in the similar way, it's not enough for us to just own a Bible, is it? Is it just good enough to have one of these things sitting on a bookshelf at home? You can say, yeah, I've got my sword. It's at home on my shelf. Is that good enough? Well, maybe, maybe it's not. Maybe one's not good, so I'll get two. Maybe two is not enough. I'll get 12. I think I own more than 12 Bibles. Uh, you, you know, is that good enough? Is it the number of swords you own? No, it's not. It doesn't matter how many Bibles. You could have a whole room full of Bibles in your house. But if you never crack it open... It's not going to be of any use to you. It's not about ownership in a physical sense that you own this book. It's ownership in a spiritual sense. You have to know what it says. You have to have knowledge of this word. That means reading it. Second of all, you need to have training in the correct use of the word. Training. This means more than just reading the words. It means studying the words and sitting under sound teaching to explain some of the complexities of the word that are difficult to understand. All of these things are vital. Now, I know this, this uh, you know, might seem strange, but when it comes to spiritual battle and conflict, and our enemy comes at us, it's not good enough to just pick up a Bible and huck it at him. Now, some of you may, you know, go with the whole, like, you know, Bible thumpers where you whack them over the head with a big old Bible, right? Like, we've got one right there with the hard cover. If you wanted to really get physical about it, that one could probably wallop you pretty good. But that's not how this is intended to be used, right? It means we need to know not only the words of Scripture, but their application as they're needed for whatever we're facing in life. Whatever maybe attack we're receiving, we need to know what the Word says to counter that attack. If we're hearing a lie, we need to know the specific truth to counter that lie. It doesn't work to just pick up a Bible and huck the whole thing at our foe. So in Ephesians 6, verse 17, I'll read it again. It says, take the sword of the Spirit. So take it, open it, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, I want to focus for a moment on this word, word. Okay, I know that's confusing. Word of God. We're going to look at that word. In the original Greek, we're very familiar with, I think most of you are familiar, with the term logos, That's what we find in John chapter 1, where it says, The word became flesh. The Greek word there is logos, and it's referring to the entirety of the word of God. Jesus embodied that. He is the word become flesh. He is the logos. However, the word that is translated into our English as word is not the same in the Greek. It's not logos. The word in the Greek is rima. Now, it's... It's along the same lines, which is why it's also translated word, but it has a very important distinction. Let me explain it to you. So logos is referring to the whole sayings of God, the entirety of his word, which Jesus is the living embodiment of all of. But here, rima is referring to the specific sayings of God in context. So the one is speaking about them as a whole, 
Logos is speaking about the word of God as a whole. Rima is speaking about the word of God, the specific sayings of God in their context. So let me explain what that means, the specific sayings of God in context. As Ironside puts it in his commentary, he says, if the devil comes and you throw the Bible at him, it's not going to drive him away. You might do that and go down yourself. But when the devil comes and you say, here is what God says, and you have a definitive saying of God to meet the case, it is then that you defeat him. So Rima is referring to the specific sayings of God. That is what the sword of the Spirit is, not just a general throw the whole Bible at our enemy. Now there's no clear illustration of this precise use of the sword of the Spirit than in our Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. We're not going to read the whole thing, but we'll look at a few of the key verses in the passage in Matthew chapter 4. And here in this next slide, we see a depiction of Jesus out there in the wilderness being faced by Satan who presents him with his three temptations. Now to set the stage for this scene, at the end of Matthew chapter 3 in verses 16 and 17, we read this. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We then proceeded to chapter 4. And there we read the, the following, that this dramatic inauguration of Jesus' ministry was immediately, the effect was that the Spirit leads him up into the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights and he is tempted by the devil. And so after this fast of 40 days and 40 nights, I love the understatement where it says, and Jesus was hungry. You think? 40 days? I've never done it, but I imagine that 40 days he would, yes, be hungry. He was still fully man. And so he's hungry, and physically he's in a weakened state. And so Satan comes at this, what he believes, opportune moment to test Jesus to see if he can get him to stumble. And he says to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Now, notice the phrasing. Once again, we've been looking at this over this series, how crafty and cunning Satan is in his use of words. He starts out with this word, if you are the Son of God. How crafty. How cunning. He's trying to tempt Jesus to doubt his position before the Father. For remember, at Jesus' baptism, just before this in chapter 3, the Father had said, this is my beloved Son. This is. There's no ifs in this statement. Jesus is God's son. But here Satan is directly attacking the father's truthfulness, trying to get Jesus to prove that he is indeed the son of God, as though there's a question mark about it. So how does Jesus respond to this first temptation? Did he provide Satan with the proof that he demanded? It would have been very easy for Jesus to do that, would it not? Especially when we consider that, you know, just some time later, maybe a few months passes by, when Jesus receives this little basket lunch of a few loaves and fishes, and there's 5,000 men plus women and children on a hillside all hungry, and everyone says, well, how are we going to feed them, Jesus? And he says, have them sit down. I'm going to feed them. And he multiplies these loaves and fishes. He can do it. He is fully capable of it, and he proves it later on. 
that would have been very easy for Jesus to look at those stones and say, be bread. And they would be bread, the most delicious bread ever baked. But he did not. He didn't need to prove anything of his position of who he was. God had just pronounced, this is my son whom I love. He was secure in his position. And he also knew that Satan knew who he was. He had been in his presence from the very beginning. He knew who Jesus was. There was no need to prove himself. And further, it was an act of trust in his father's provision. That he knew his, his, his father's goodness towards him, that he wasn't going to let him starve to death. As hungry as he was, he had spiritual bread that Satan knew not of, as we, as we hear Jesus say to his disciples later on in the Gospels. He trusted his father, and he didn't need to prove who he was. He was secure in his position as a son. One commentator named Boyce gives a colorful paraphrase of this passage as it proceeds in which he says that at this point, Satan really gets into the act by saying, in effect, well, I see that you are a student of Scripture, having memorized that verse from Deuteronomy, but, of course, I am something of a biblical scholar myself. You see, when I'm not wandering about to and fro across the earth tempting men like Job or others, I have my own periods of Bible study, and not long ago I came across this psalm where it says in Psalm 91, verse 11, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Do you believe that? Is that true? Well, I'm going to make a suggestion. If it really is true, let's go up onto the highest point of the temple. You and me. You jump off, and God will bear you up. It's what his word says, isn't it? And the plus will be all the people will get to see this amazing miracle, and they will follow you immediately. You'll get your ministry off to a rip-roaring start. But Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy a second time. It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And here Jesus used Scripture to interpret Scripture, which is an important hermeneutical principle. Scripture interprets Scripture. Satan was twisting it once more, but Jesus interpreted it and used it correctly. In the third temptation, Satan now throws off all subtlety and he tries to bargain for Jesus' worship. And so he takes him up onto a high mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory and he gives them and he gives him this promise. All this I will give you if you will but bow down and worship me. But Jesus replied, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And here we see yet another quote from the book of Deuteronomy. In all scripture, there is no better example of the power of the specific sayings of the word of God to counter Satan's attacks, to drive him back, than in our Lord Jesus Christ. That each and every time he, he heard a temptation from Satan, his response was, it is written. He knew scripture, He didn't just throw the whole thing at it. He knew the specific sayings of Scripture, and so he countered skillfully with a pinpoint thrust exactly to counter the lies that Satan was presenting him with. And so in this way, we see a proper use of Scripture. And so let me put this to you directly. If Jesus, the Son of God, if he had to know scripture 
and how to use it correctly in order to resist Satan's attacks and win the victory that day. If Jesus had to do this, how much more do you suppose that you and I need to know Scripture and how to use it in order to win our battles against Satan? How much more important do you think it is even for us if Jesus had to know and use Scripture in battle? For remember, if we underestimate Satan, if we think that we can go up against him on our own power, on our own wisdom, or on our own strength, it is always, always a fatal mistake. We simply cannot match him on our own. But when we learn how to wield the sword of the Spirit, when we learn how to use its specific sayings to counter the lies and the cunning and the twisting that Satan will try to bring our way, then, and only then, with the sword of the Spirit, Satan is no match for the power of God as he works in us and through us to counter Satan's attacks. Now, I love this next slide. I've showed it to you once before in this series. And in this next slide, uh, it's got this focus on the shield of faith that I used uh, earlier in our series. But it applies to, the, to the, the sword as well. For you can see in this slide that the man, he's looking down, his eyes are fixed on the word of God. He has it before him, and that's where he's looking. But you can also see up there that Satan's shadowy arrows are flying in. But then you look behind him and you see in the man's shadow that his spiritual armor is on. His shield of faith is up and in his right hand he is holding that sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And this is also why 2 Timothy 2 verse 15 tells us, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the Word of Truth. So here we see again this emphasis on this diligence in the study, the handling of God's word. And the only way this can happen, the only way, is we must do as the man in this slide is doing. We must read this word. We must study, listen to, discuss, and memorize this word of God so that we are always prepared to draw our sword and to use it skillfully in whatever battles are yet ahead in our lives. Now, I told you at the beginning of this sermon that this book saved my life, changed the course of my life, and is even still today sustaining my life. So let me just share a little bit of that testimony with you. It was the stories from within the pages of this book that formed my very first memories in life. I remember my mom reading me this set of Bible story books that we had. I just loved them and I couldn't get enough of them. And she would read them to me again and again upon my request. And in fact, she tells me that I loved them so much and wanted her to read them to me so often as a toddler that in order to get any work done around the house, she finally recorded herself reading the stories onto a cassette tape. And so I would get the tape player and I could get out the storybooks and I'd hit play and there would be mom's voice reading to me in Plotdich of all things. That was my mother tongue. And, and I would look at the pages and, and I could hear her reading them to me. So this forms my very first memories in life. Then as I learned to love those stories, as I grew up, I gained a basic understanding of what Jesus had done for me by dying on the cross. I came to a childlike understanding of what the gospel was, that I was a sinner, that I needed to be saved from my sins, and that only Jesus could do that. And so age five came along, and I had not acted upon this knowledge, though it was there. The foundation had been formed. 
And so one night, my older brother, he then came into play, and he was on the top bunk, I was on the bottom, and he was ready for some evangelistic zeal, I think, after maybe going to VBS, and so he was going to make sure his brother was saved, and he asked me, Danny, have you asked Jesus into your heart yet? And, well, I tried to avoid the question, but he persisted, and I finally had to admit, no, I have not done that yet. And so that night, he, of course, insisted I had to pray out loud to make sure that I had done it. But I did it, and though it was perhaps slightly under duress, I meant it. I knew, I knew what was at stake, and I prayed, and I asked Jesus to enter my life. I put my faith in him as a five-year-old. But let me tell you that the life-changing power of this book wasn't finished with me yet at that point, not by a long shot. For as I grew up, I began to learn more and more. I went from just childlike understanding to a deeper understanding, and, and as I grew... I still thought that at some point I would, I would reach a certain stage where, where suddenly, you know, I would have everything under control and, and sin wouldn't be a problem anymore. And then at that point, God could use me. And so I thought I would strive for that. But in the meantime, I would kind of make my plans for my life, what direction it would take. And sure, I wanted God's blessing on the direction of my life. I, I believed in him after all, but... I was going to be the one to set the course for it. And so by age 18, I was absolutely certain that that course was to be a pilot, to have a career in aviation, and I was making plans in that direction. But then the winter of my grade 12 year, suddenly the thought just struck me that I realized I had never read through the entire New Testament from front to back. I'd just never done it. For some reason, I felt this spark that I wanted to do it. But I decided I wasn't only going to read through it, I was also going to study it more in depth by reading this set of commentaries that explain things along the way that I just couldn't grasp. And so immediately I began reading, and I was reading the commentary, and things began making sense. And it pulled me in, and rather than becoming bored by it, it began to just really capture me, and I kept going, and I kept going that winter, and I grew in understanding, faith, and more importantly, a desire to obey. But I was still going to be a pilot. I was certain of that. But then one night, I felt prompted that I should pray honestly to say, God, you direct my life. You set the course. You set the direction. Whatever that may be, I want that. I prayed that for the first time honestly as an 18-year-old. And then suddenly, within a few days, I realized that my desire to become a pilot had just vanished. And it just vaporized in thin air. I looked for it. I searched for it because that's who I was. That's my identity. But it was gone. And I felt almost empty. Where had this gone? How could this have happened? And I felt almost lost in that moment. But I came back to God in prayer and, and, and I really searched for his heart. And I said, God, if this is what, if this is you directing my life, I accept that. I receive it. So whatever you have for me, please direct my steps into whatever the future holds. And so it was, again, through the study of this word that the course of my life, the direction of it, changed completely. God prompted me to head to Bible college, and along the way, he began prompting further steps and further steps until it finally has included now me being a preacher for the past 17 years of my life. And I know that the course change in my life would not have happened. I know for certain it would not have happened without the life-changing power of this book contained within its pages as I engaged with its truth.
and the Holy Spirit engaged with my heart. But I can tell you that the life-changing power of this book still wasn't finished with me, not by a long shot. For as those 17 plus years pass by, I cannot tell you how many times that this book has convicted, encouraged, directed, and sustained me through many ups and downs. Even over these past two very challenging years, all of us have faced different challenges of different types in these past couple of years, and I'm no exception to that. And there's this, this moment along the way where you wonder, Lord, how, how can we endure this? I, I feel so discouraged or tired or frustrated, whatever the emotions might be. And how many times coming into this book is just a sanctuary. It's like the Holy of Holies. You rest there. And God speaks. And he sustains in a deep, profound way. And I remember last fall, a moment where I felt tired, just tired to the point that I didn't know if I had what it took to keep enduring. And wouldn't you know it, that very week, the sermon text included Romans chapter 15, verse 4, which says, Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Well, those words jumped right off the page, and they hit me square. That everything, everything written in this book, all of Scripture, including those same Bible stories that I had listened to as a toddler and I couldn't get enough of about Noah and Moses and Daniel and Esther and Elijah, all of them were written so that I could be encouraged, so that I could be given endurance and not lose hope. And when I received that word, that this word was for me, it was like I could breathe again. I felt it do something inside of me, in my chest. I, I felt it. It was visceral. It was real. I, I don't know how to explain it. But I know that it was the work of the word and the spirit within me. And I feel him still sustaining me today. And so now I've gained just enough experience in my life to know that the life-changing word of God within this book is still not finished with me yet, not by a long shot. It will never be finished with me until the day I meet Jesus face to face. I am certain of that. And so I also believe that this book and the spirit working through this book in our lives, I am certain that he is not finished working with you yet either. I don't care how old you are or how young you are, he is not finished with you. This word, as you engage with it, as the Spirit of God engages with your heart through its truth, he will do a good work in you, just as he has done in so many others, and just as I can testify that he's doing and has done in my life. He's not finished with any one of us. And so I'm fully persuaded. I am utterly convinced that this word of God is living and active that it is sharper than a double-edged sword, that it pierces to the division of soul and spirit to joint and marrow, and it can discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And furthermore, I am persuaded that as it goes forth, God says it will not return void, but it will accomplish exactly the task for which God has sent it to do, which includes in our own hearts and in our own lives. 
And so my friends, today, just as I bear testimony that this living word of God has the power to save my life, change the course of my life, and sustain my life, the same power is available for you right now today, regardless of whatever you're facing, whatever you will yet face. This is the living word of God, the sword of the Spirit. It is yours. Open it, read it, meditate upon it, and let it change you from the inside out. For this is the will and the power of God. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much this morning for your divine word, which you have given to us so freely by your grace. We thank you that this word is living and active, and I pray, Lord, that it is as it has gone forth today, may it do its intended work in our hearts and in our lives. And further, Lord, I pray that you would draw us by your spirit into a deeper love for your word, to immerse ourselves in it daily. And so when Satan comes along and he tries to distract us from picking it up, he'll throw everything our way to keep us out of this book, out of your truth. Help us to counter those distractions with the truth. Help us to learn how to use this word, not just in a general sense, but by its specific sayings to counter the enemy, just as you, Lord Jesus, did all those years ago as you countered Satan. To be able to say, it is written, and then to actually know what is written so that we can confront the lies with the truth which are endowed with the power of God. And so we pray, Lord, that this would be something that each one of us would grow in, no matter our age, that this word is not finished with us yet. And so we pray, may it do its work within us this morning, in this day, and in the days yet ahead. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.